Bansati uh, mindfulness, which um, there are lots of translations for that word, but it's also a quality that you have been enacting quite furiously since the moment you arrived. (laughs) So for me to talk about it is I'm just hoping that um, to help you understand it more, develop some of its dimensions, and encourage you in the practice of mindfulness and all the other qualities. It's said that mindfulness really brings balance to the mind and brings the enlightenment factors to culmination. I'll be talking a little bit about that. But first, because of my temperament and being me, I wanted to share with you an ad that is from the New Yorker, which I don't know if you can see. It's a super elegant woman with a skyscraper, and it's called The Center of Now, downtown Dubai. Have you felt the winds of change? Have you experienced the wonder of the world's new center? Downtown Dubai is home to the incomparable Buri Khalifa, the magnificent malls and endless entertainment options. So anyway, (laughs) I would like to counter that with saying that uh, the center of now is here. (laughs) And with that, I could end the talk almost. (laughs) So now to begin the more serious aspect, I guess, or intermittently serious aspect. Um, (laughs) About a week ago, I was in Tucson teaching a retreat, and at the end, you know how there's often the gratitude circle or the time when people speak a little bit about their experience, and one of the women there said, I want to thank, there's a lot of thanking that goes on, I want to thank, and it's heartfelt too. At the end, she said, I want to thank myself for being here and for bringing together the resources to come here. And people kind of smiled in a little bit of embarrassment, and then it was kind of like it sank in how important and meaningful that was. So without waiting for the end of the retreat, I'd like to invite you all to thank yourselves for being here and maybe forgive yourselves a little bit too, but really mostly thanking. Um, So here we are in this room together on... This is mindfulness, is noticing that we're here together. Second day of retreat for some, the 32nd day, or something like that for others. And we're also here in our life with much to be grateful for, much to thank ourselves for, for being here, and being here being it. So the talk about sati is to remind us also that this is what's real, this is in a way, the Buddha's great genius and discovery that this is, this is the absolute here and now. This is what we're practicing as being here, where we are. And where is that, or what is that like? We're in the human, we're in the human birth. Dante, the great poet of humanity, said, in the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark wood where the true way was completely lost. Even to talk about it now makes me afraid. But because I found some good things there, I will tell you about it. I can't really report to you how I came to be in this place because I was so full of sleep when the straight path was lost. Isn't that beautiful? Because I was so full of sleep when the straight path was lost. Isn't that kind of like trying to practice mindfulness too? (laughs) 
a friend of mine recited it for me in Italian, which I can't do. Very beautiful. But I like how he says, I don't know how I wandered off. I really don't know how I lost the way or how I found myself here. It's something that speaks to both the mystery of life and kind of the problem of life, what we're trying to resolve, and the innocence of his sleep, of his having fallen asleep, that our drowsiness is not our fault, Um, our much thinking is not our fault, that it's something that we're born with and that perhaps by its difficulty leads us to want to find the way again. So we're all here in that, in the midst of an experience that may have us feeling at times uncertain or trembling or confused or mysterious, noticing the ephemerality and vulnerability of all things is really actually sort of both the problem and the cure. Maybe we're hoping a bear will adopt us. (laughs) I wouldn't mind. (laughs) I used to wish I had wolves for parents, and when I read those books, I thought it would be so cool. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, maybe we can suckle at the tits of the great cosmic bear here. (laughs) Buddha mama. So here we all are, like in our beauty and being willing to show up. And we're doing it together, and it's great. This big question, you know, how can we live? How can we live with so much not knowing what will happen? Say each time a child gets born or each time we connect with someone else, we don't know where it'll end or what will happen next or what will come to us in the next moment, what kind of person we'll be sitting next to and then when the new people came, something like that. And here we are together for a while, helping one another, supporting one another, and yet we also know that we won't be here uh, in a few days. It's kind of a dilemma. You know, can we open to that? It's so beautiful that we're here protected to be open and to come to terms with life the way it is. And as Jack was saying last night, the Buddha also felt shaken by the situation, truly, deeply, and thoroughly shaken, leaving his protected life and seeing someone sick and someone dying and someone old. How we love this story, too. It's kind of like Dante's universality. It's also our universality that we're always trying to protect ourselves and have a wonderfully sensuous existence, and then something can happen to us that really shakes us, or... We're just not persuaded by what passes for happiness in this regular world, or we know there's something beyond the role that we've been assigned, something like that. I also think, although the Buddha wasn't necessarily a huge social reformer, that when I think about revisiting the essence of his experience when he saw those heavenly messengers, this sick person, that... He says, uh, all the arrogance of my youth fell away. When I saw the old person, all the arrogance of my health fell away. You can see that he was afraid, but that he also was really able to identify with, the other, with those other people. And that those other people were from a different class or caste from him. That he saw that we really are all one in this respect. So 
um, the barriers between himself and those others kind of disappeared. Then he wanted to resolve the situation for all of us or find something that could help all of us. When he created his own small society, he took away all of the differences between people, um, only seniority by time of ordination, since there kind of had to be something, but not by caste or class or wealth. So I love that it's that way. Later on, when he talked about, he went on his quest, as we know, and he first was pretty mean to himself, I guess. He like wanted to get rid of all the things that he'd enjoyed and strip himself down and kind of get to bare essentials and really concentrate and focus and go beyond this world, which was kind of the orientation of the time, like to go to some divine state outside of sensuous experience, like as if he would go outside of death or beyond death um, through, you know, sort of not letting his flesh pull on him, kind of something like that. And then um, that's also a way that sometimes we can be early in our practice, that we really strive hard thinking that we have to become something else or someone else or that our regular way of being isn't good enough, that we're trying to get away from our regular way of being by being here. Um, that I, you know, keeps coming back. It's not like you totally get over it. But um, sometimes later on you kind of learn how to relax and be a little bit more accepting of the wanderings of your mind and sort of pick up the thread wherever you left off or some new thread. Who knows? When he relaxed a little bit and talked to a woman and ate some rice pudding, then he sat down under a tree and discovered uh, this path. So he talked about it later on and said, after his gentler moment, um, he reported, it is just as if a man traveling along a wilderness track were to see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled by people of former times, then he would follow it. In the same way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road traveled by the awakened ones of former times. It was very overgrown. And what was that path? So I would like to say it's often called the Noble Eightfold Path, is what he said, but, um, and also seeing that everything is arising interdependently. But I would like to say that what he discovered that was both old and new was that it was this moment's real and genuine experience was actually turning his mind to recognize um, his existence or his experience in that moment. And I think we can all see how easily that experience gets overgrown in our lives and how sort of blindingly obvious it is that um, this is real, this here and now is real, and also how amazingly weird it is that we can get so incredibly lost also at the same time. So I think that's really his genius. And to talk about sati or mindfulness is completely inseparable from that discovery because mindfulness is really that. It's knowing the present moment, kind of taking away the filters and being as present as we can be, moment by moment by moment. Some of the things that flow from that... um, I get very excited by I cut a bunch of them out in order to get the talk down to be of an appropriate size. But we're really experiencing beings. You know, everything that's ever happened to us is in a matrix of experience. In a certain sense, there's nothing sort of out there. There's nothing outside of our knowing. 
And our knowing is also ignited by rubbing against what seems to be this outer world. And you can't quite boil it down to being one or the other. Tremendous implications for that that I think I'll try to explore in a different, in another talk a little bit later on. But we begin to follow the path by landing in our own experience. It's not as if the Buddha can actually put us there. This is a very intimate thing that we can do for ourselves only to be willing to come close to what we're experiencing, not by speculating, not by thinking and pondering, but directly landing in it. It's also clear that like all the other enlightenment factors and all the powers of the path, that we have awareness already inside us. There's something in us that's knowing our experience on and on. You could almost call it like the life force of our existence, really, that we're... um, experiencing and living. But by developing it in the path, it kind of brings it to a fuller fruition. You know, everything that's ever happened to us has not ruined our capacity to experience everything, nor has our practice, you know, necessarily improved it that much. It may clarify it, but it's actually still the same kind of river of being and knowing that flows through us and that we really actually are. But when we begin to develop uh, sati or mindfulness as a path factor, it, we kind of like have a way of putting it in charge of our experience or putting it in charge of the part of us that uh, we can sort of have intentions about. It's the first of the enlightenment factors for that reason. Um, it's said, you know, when sati is present that automatically we're somewhat confident because we know what we're experiencing It's a form of metta because it's willing to engage and come close to things and not judge things, not judge what's going on. And it's wisdom because it kind of engages a new type of process. It begins a new, uh, it's a cause of, of further things. So it kind of protects the mind from some of the dangerous parts of itself. So it's not actually just one easy thing. There's so many different ways of um, talking about mindfulness. And in the texts, it's spoken of in many different ways. There are different fields where mindfulness is suggested to be applied. I'm going to try to talk about that and some of its functions and characteristics all in this one talk. So as we're being nurtured and protected here, like in this building and by this situation and with so many people helping us to bring forth this mindfulness, it's kind of like we're in this big incubator here, a bunch of little baby chickens or even like eggs, maybe, all of us. The Buddha and um, talked about uh, a hen being on her nest and warming the egg and not running, running away from her egg. And uh, Sayada Upandita, one of my first teachers, has a very delightful little description of this about how if the hen, mother hen runs away from her egg, it will get cold and it will rot. And uh, she has to keep it at just the right temperature and she kind of turns it with her feet and stuff to keep all sides of it warm. So thinking of us sitting on our little round cushions here, (laughs) sometimes like that. (laughs) Not getting up and running out of the hall as we've requested you to do and coming into the hall at the right times and things like that. (laughs) Staying continuous and not abandoning the practice at any time, so your egg does not get cold and rotten. The egg being 
oneself, I guess. Um, and maybe mindfulness is one of the factors, you could call it, what we're using to keep the egg warm. So what is it exactly, mindfulness? Some people would say it's like a moment of pure awareness before your thinking jumps in. As quoted by an old friend of ours, Sarah During, uh, Emily Dickinson said, to live is so startling, there's no time for anything else. (laughs) Kind of total awareness, right? But we also say that it's not a judgmental awareness, it's not a reactive awareness, and it has a purpose, like deep down we're liberating ourselves and disentangling and stopping and so many of the things that we've been saying from here. So it's something a little bit more basic, a more basic process of our being than thinking is. Now our thinking seems to have become kind of overpowering and when we talk about things being overgrown, I think thinking is like the main thing that overgrows our path, overgrows our mind. Presence could be another word for mindfulness, being present. And it kind of depends on your mind what, uh, what's going to resonate But one thing is for certain is that mindfulness is one uh, quality in practice that we can never have too much of. Um, Some other things you can have too much of, they can get out of balance, but in mindfulness everything comes into balance and it allows, you know, sort of striving to be modulated. It allows, you know, um, our ecstasy to be less than insanely crazy. Um, (laughs) It helps us see that sadness has its different tones and stuff like that. So it's a kind of inner silence uh, where we're also seeing, where we're also present. It might also include something like a willingness to relate to the moment and come out of our habitual state of preoccupation. As I was saying, and it also is unconditional. It doesn't choose only what we like or what is most pleasant. Before I came here, I was talking with Trudy, my friend, and I told her I was really nervous about teaching in this one-month retreat. I felt kind of intimidated. I haven't taught in such long retreats before. It'd be my second time teaching at Spirit Rock and like that, and I had discovered a real deep unwillingness to come and do this. (laughs) I did not want to come. (laughs) I was scared. Um, and Trudy said, having just been the hostess of uh, Sharon Salzberg, that one of Sharon's uh, statements was that our fear and our anxiety and our insecurity is kind of a qualification for being in the practice. And I thought, well, why shouldn't it also be a qualification to teach? Like, what would be so wrong with that? Why do I have to know everything? <laughs> Something happened, you know, when I was able to turn around and embrace that wobbly feeling I was having and this kind of new trust emerged that I'm sitting with now, um, that I'm speaking from also now. It just sort of shifted something. It was important for me that that happened. So this mindfulness is something that can really protect our mind and protect our heart from the fear and instability into which we would otherwise be dragged We call it uh, a counter to the word papancha or proliferation, which is what the mind tends to do when we aren't in the moment. There's this new, like, science is kind of catching up with the Buddha 2,500 years later, 
And um, I don't know if anyone has heard about the Appiness Project, which is an iPhone app you can get. You can still download this thing where they call you every so often and you're asked to rate your state of happiness on a scale of 1 to 10. And hundreds of people have done it. Thousands. Thousands, yeah. I, yeah, thousands of people have done it and maybe thousands more will keep doing it. Um, what was found was that people were very, mostly really happy when they were having sex. 90 on the scale of 100 was usually reported. And I was wondering also, like, who answers the phone? How happy can they really be? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) I guess it shows how committed people are to this project, right? (laughs) People have a really good heart, right? But one of the things they found, and this was in the New York Times, that they said, on average, people's minds are wandering 47% of the time. And one of the researchers said, I find it, that's almost half the time, right? Maybe we might find it even more than half, but I find it kind of weird now to walk down a crowded street and realize that half the people aren't really there, said one of the researchers. They also said that the rate of mind wandering does not depend on whether the activity is enjoyable or not. And that if you're engaged in an enjoyable activity and your mind wanders, it doesn't mean that you wander on to more pleasant things, that the mind wanders very easily into negative things no matter what's going on when it is allowed to wander. And people uh, tended to be a lot happier if they were focused within their activity. So he summed it up in a couple of phrases. We see evidence for mind wandering causing unhappiness but not for unhappiness causing mind-wandering. And the clever writer in the New York Times said, the motto seems to be, you stray, you pay. (laughs) Have you noticed? (laughs) Now, not all mind-wandering is so bad. It's not necessarily a crime. Here's a spam I got today. Use tools and powerful analysis for smarter fantasy baseball decisions. Less than 10 cents a day, fantasy factors, key information about each player, age, injury, team support, and luck. Players that don't exist. (laughs) And this is being sold by the Bloomberg Business Network, meaning the people who run the New York Stock Exchange. (laughs) This world is really crazy. But, I mean, that's sort of, that's funny and fun. But, you know, maybe we don't need to be protected from that part of the mind's creativity, really. Um... But what mindfulness protects the mind from is when it goes into obsession and delusion, and that's probably the definition of papancha, is sort of when it's obsessed and caught and stuff. So protecting ourselves from mind-wandering is a great form of metta and self-care. By coming back to the present moment again and again, and even sometimes just by saying, like, hey, I'm sitting here, um, we kind of have a little tiny moment of not amplifying and proliferating negative experiences in various ways. A couple of my friends have lost their jobs or are losing their jobs or might lose their jobs. And one of them has said to me that the mindfulness is really her survival, coming out of the internal mind dream. That was her words. Um, and she says when she comes out of that mind dream, she looks for her fears, for, and she says, you know, it's really not there. The situation she's projecting isn't there. She's just washing the dishes. She's really helping herself. 
you can say that we almost like sometimes distract our mind out of its projections into the reality that's happening here and now. It's kind of like sometimes we even have to kind of coax it or tease it or persuade it or find something pleasant for it to focus on so that it can focus and stop obsessing. All of those things are part of our mindfulness tools. What can we be aware of? There's a great Zen poem. I have a book of Zen death poems. This uh, master wrote at the end of his life, probably maybe the last line he wrote, I move my bed closer to the window. Yeah, it's so, so real, still alive. So one really helpful way to hold our mindfulness and to bring our mind uh, to the moment, I like the image that um, when it's in the commentaries for breath awareness, but uh, Pascalo Claire in one of his talks online uh, widened it to our whole practice, which is to imagine a saw. Um, this instruction for the breath is to keep the attention in one location and not follow the breath in and out, to sort of to just stay in one place and see the sensations arising and passing in one place, or it could be the abdomen, anywhere like that. But it's kind of like as you're sawing a piece of wood, you're just looking at the place where the saw is contacting the wood. I find that really helpful for thinking about the moment, keeping the mind collected in this moment, just in one place, just in this moment, not before and not after. Anagarika Manindra said, if you observe your mind, what will you find? We find that our mind is constantly thinking of something of the past or planning for the future. The past is not real, it has gone. The future is also not real, it has not come. Real reality is this present state. We are living in this present moment only. So we, I, I do, at the end of one three-month course, I did a full talk about Goldilocks and the three beers. Because having listened to Menindra for all that time, I couldn't. his voice was like my whole mindfulness instruction. Anyway, We are living in the present moment only. So we have to live the life fully, being alive, seeing things as they are at this moment, as they are, as they appear to us, not some other way. Like, if we're feeling dull, it's dullness. We always want our experience to be something else than it is. We always want it to be finer or, um, or more perfect, more graspable, more solid, more square. So mindfulness comes in, in a way, as a liberator, like freeing us from the process of grasping this moment. Seeing it moment to moment, not being somewhere else, we start to really see that that's actually how we arise. Really, this path of landing in experience is a step-by-step, moment-by-moment thing, again and again, coming in. How can we land? How can we connect? Freeing one moment at a time. That's Nibbana is kind of a process, as we as beings are kind of a process and a flow. If we really were able to see ourselves, so is freedom. The Buddha said it was hard to describe the path um, when he talked about it. So how do we describe coming into this moment and not uh, finding a freedom that's going to be out there, finding our freedom now um, in this process as it is? So how do we not be in contention from the moment we wake up uh, with the bell that is ringing to get us out of bed with how we feel that uh, our mind isn't quite there when we're sleepy or having scary dreams in the two o'clock sitting or... What's for lunch? 
you know. <laughs> but with this micro-slicing kind of uh, aspect of the practice, it can really also help us get through times when the uh, problem feels a little thick, that it's just one moment that we have to take care of. And I think it's out of this spirit that uh, Martin Luther King was able to say, even when there were threats on his life, that uh, he could learn to live every moment of life with optimism. You know, not projecting uh, a future, but really living now. It gives us a lot. The first foundation, or the thing that will really help us ground this awareness momentarily, is to pay attention to the body, to the physical experience of the body. This is what the Buddha recommended. And he recommended mindfulness of the body many, many times in many contexts. But um, he said, imagine if you tied a rope to every one of six creatures, to a snake, to a crocodile, to a bird, to a dog, to a jackal, and to a monkey. The snake would slither toward the anthill where it lives. The crocodile would try to go into the river. The bird would fly up into the air. The dog would look for food. The jackal would go into the forest, and the monkey would head for the trees. And this is us. This is our six sense doors, each trying to go in their own direction, being pulled in so many directions. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Actually, I think the mind door feels more like an elephant, like trying to get into some trouble or something like that. An elephant, what are they called when they're they're in their rutting stage, when they're a little maddened and... um, broken into the village and taken the palm wine and are breaking up everything in sight. So he suggested that grounding the attention in the body um, really was like tethering each of these beings to a post and keeping them in one place and keeping them from each of the senses from running towards its respective field, the sight, the, you know, the seeing from running after sights and etc., the hearing from running after hearing that after tethering and bringing them back, that these animals would be, all be willing to lie down together and not run away from each other also in fear. So groundedness in the experiencing body. Actually, we see that the body experiences itself quite naturally. It's already wired for that, that our mind, if we're really careful looking at the mind and body, we see that you know our mind goes all the way down to our feet, at least. It might even go elsewhere, but... Um, we don't, our mind just definitely does not stop at our neck. One of the things that starts happening too is that as we begin to return to the tethering of attention to the body, which is also the breathing, that we start to really open and see some of the characteristics of what's going on, that the body isn't solid, that it's constantly also sensing and experiencing we become willing to open to heat and coolness and tingling and bunching and twisting and um, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral sensations. Not just our thoughts about the body, about the glorious, glamorous body we wish we had and didn't, don't have, but the experience, not the idea. And even in a day-long retreat, someone I was teaching, it was her first day of retreat, she said, I felt this pain in my shoulder, and I was paying attention to it as it actually was, and I saw that the sensation was different from my dislike of it, and it was so liberating when that happened. And only by being invited to come close to what was, 
even the reactivity, was she able to tell the two apart, that one was sort of the mind's resistance and the other was the actual sensation. So we begin to discern the characteristics of the breath, like the actual coolness or the actual movement of the belly, trying to see, sort of see our way a little bit through all the pictures and images that arise. And as those qualities begin to be discerned, it's, that's when these kinds of slightly liberating insights become available, distinguishing the uh, sensation from the thought about pain. So this is knowing the experience and also knowing that you know whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this sort of leads to the aspect of mindfulness that is about showing up for all of it. There's a kind of willingness and courage in that. Uh, We've been carried along by some of the protection of mindfulness to where we can actually touch on experiences that might not be so easy for us. Lynn Jensen, uh, who's a sort of politically active uh, Buddhist, writes, This world has a place for each of us that no one else can fill. I may want my circumstances to be different than they are, but I need, as we all do, to show up for what I'm given. I may not want to witness the grief and hatred that has taken over people's hearts, but that's what I've got, and this day's peace vigil is where I belong. He goes out and sits on a sidewalk, or he did for a while, sit on the sidewalk every day for a while. It doesn't really matter whether I like being here or not. What matters is that I be faithful to the life I'm given and not forfeit myself in rejection. This is the life that I alone can live. So I've talked a little bit about the protection of mindfulness from the mental proliferation, about seeing mindfulness as momentary and how helpful that is. Now I'll move to a little bit some of the Abhidhamma understandings of mindfulness, um, saying that the characteristic of mindfulness, um, what characterizes mindfulness is not being superficial, which when you read it in a dry text, you're kind of like, oh yeah, you know, that could be like a technical instruction. And it has been for me very often um, to really... Um, engage some of the other factors of enlightenment and move toward experience with um, some energy or some faith or some commitment, sort of some other energizing factors. But let's say also that mindfulness can be very full and very engaged and very much relational, very intimate, as John Travis has been saying. The um, description is that it's like a stone sinking deep into the water. Another one of my um, people that I work with, I was asking her about um, whether she was really, she was talking about certain things, and I said, are you being mindful moment to moment in your life? And she said, oh yeah, I'm not a floater. (laughs) Which is kind of like, it was exactly something from the texts, you know, like we normally kind of float along, bumping along, like bumping up against the rocks and washing up on the shore for a while, and you know, we're not really in, in the flow of things so much. And she said, she went on to say, it gives me a connected feeling with whatever's going on. I feel more authentic. All the other stuff is peripheral. So here's a little um, thing about intimacy with experience from this wonderful publication, The Sun. It's from a Japanese-American woman. 
My mother used to make pickled plums every summer with shiso leaves, which dye the green plums a gorgeous wine-red color. She learned the recipe from my grandmother, who learned it from her mother, and so on. But she never had the chance to teach it for me, to teach it to me. It takes weeks to soak the plums in shiso leaf liquid with lots of salt, weeks more to dry them in the sun. My mother would meticulously turn each fruit so that all sides dried equally. When they were finally done in late July, I could taste the sun in every plum. My mother made her last batch of pickled plums two years before my father died, and she brought me a couple of big containers full of them. I've eaten them infrequently over the years. When I do eat one, I keep the seeds in my mouth long after I finish so that I can suck out every last bit of the sour and salty taste. So non-superficiality is that. You can see like the whole heart and the whole being is involved in this experience that she's relating. So we're not afraid with mindfulness to bring our whole heart forward and touch experience fully on all sides. And the thing that's kind of critical with this, the balance is that we're also letting things be the way they are. So we're both connecting and we're letting be at the same time. So you can also see from here where some of the other enlightenment factors come in and how they're being simultaneously built, sort of the energy and the, the excitement and the zest of connection and the calmness of letting things be. Sayada Upandita said, do not choose your experience, just record what comes, whether you like it or not. Continuity of mindfulness will cause the mind to fall into a concentrated state. The mind will be undistracted and concentrated without restlessness, doubt, and agitation. So this moves us from, say, the first foundation of mindfulness a little bit into the second foundation, which is the noticing feeling tones, the coming and going, and like the things that we like and dislike, which tend to alternate through the day, somewhat beyond our control. Can we be with what's difficult and with what's easy with an equally open heart? Not just the happy parts. Again and again, it's just like you keep coming into this feeling of being in the heart of experience. The poet Mark Doty, uh, in writing a memoir about the death of, uh, life and death of two of his dogs and his life as intertwined with these dogs, said, My forebears thought of heaven as a place devoid of tension and conflict. But they lived hand to mouth. There was never enough. No wonder they figured heaven as a place of plenty, all needs met, eternal completion and praise. Can we relate to that? Where we'd like to be. But I can't imagine anything that far removed from the rest of the universe. Isn't every place permeated by tension, the play of opposites, yoked and irresolvable contradictions? If the kingdom of heaven is within us, then that means what is within us must fit into the kingdom of heaven, doesn't it? the kingdom of heaven is within us, then that means that what's within us must fit into the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, without pain, we might just float away, unable to feel the darkness and suffering of this world. If we don't internalize some of the terrible gravity around us, we might as well not have been here at all. One sees people like that, untouched, perpetually young faces who seem merely to have floated through life. Forgive me, O spirit of empathy, but certain airbrushed Chelsea boys come to mind. 
He's gay, which is <laughs> not enough of life has entered them to transform them. I think we need to let a part of ourselves be abandoned by God. How crazy is that? But maybe being abandoned by God is not to be abandoned by ourselves or by mindfulness, to f- let mindfulness follow us into despair or all of those wobbly places that are real and that are part of us. As Jack said, the superficial annoyances begin to fade away and more of us kind of becomes available. Mindfulness in the suttas is also spoken of this way as a deeper contemplation into the roots of our being, into the roots of the deep, deep currents inside ourselves. We come into a much truer connection with ourselves and that is so fruitful and adorable and enjoyable when we can draw near to ourselves no matter where we are in the experience and engage with ourselves willingly free from judging ourselves for being afraid or being unmindful or whatever that might be so with this moving from feeling tone we also start to be aware of the whole mental realm this what goes on inside us the third foundation of mindfulness As Manindra said, by constant practice, our whole inner being comes to to the conscious level. Nothing is hidden. As you go deeper, then those impressions that we have accumulated in our daily lives by action and reaction will come to the surface and they will be washed away. In every moment, sometimes happiness, sometimes unhappiness, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes disturbed, sometimes concentrated. One's duty is just to be mindful not to be stuck to any phenomena, not to react. There's a kind of like silence, like maybe the silence of love, getting out of the way of ourselves as we be with ourselves. And with this, I think there's a kind of ecological thing, like psychological green non-carbon footprint or something, like we stop projecting our anger and our neediness into the world quite so much and our ability to love and really connect with other people is enhanced. One of the other things that was happening before I came to this retreat is that my husband, dear partner, didn't uh, like, doesn't like being alone when I go away. And my initial reaction has been to sort of say, like, well, I can't really engage with that feeling, because if I do, then I just won't go or something. Like, I can't allow you to feel that and also still leave. You know, it's like, just get away from me with that clinging kind of thing, like, I love you and I'm going, so deal with yourself kind of thing. (laughs) I mean, it's great. I mean, I I love it that everything is better for him when I'm around. That is really flattering. That's fantastic. It's not, you know. But then I started thinking, like, we've made a little progress around all kinds of different things, and one of the things we've made progress with is the thermostat in our hall. Like, one of us is colder and one of us is hotter all the time. You know, so he'll come into our room and he'll say, like, God, I'm really cold. And I'm like, it's so hot. Can't you see how hot it is? You know, and then at some point I started really being able to say, like, you know what? We're all different. Maybe he's, he really is cold now, you know? Like, (laughs) 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 maybe that's okay. (laughs) It was something like that. And when I started to say, like, yeah, you know, I could really open up to that feeling of him not wanting me to go. Um, I think actually with that, we got to a 
place of some kind of closeness that we hadn't, you know, it was a new level too. It was great. A lot of good stuff happened just in the week before I came here. It's all downhill now. (laughs) But it somehow like requires being real. It requires forgiving yourself. It requires sometimes knowing like that there was an innocence when we strayed into this thicket of feelings and kind of being willing to sit with them for long enough to start to see some of the shapes in the gloom, you know, like that, like being able to feel hurt myself a little bit by, you know, stuff and then move past it or move around it. So we have a lab here in the retreat for stuff like this, you know, in the behavior of other beings um, on the retreat. And we've asked people to not, you know, to if you're going to breathe in a noisy, controlled manner to try to do it outside, but uh, out of here. But a certain amount of disturbance may not be avoidable. So what does that mean? How do we relate to the stuff that comes up? And can we connect that to the way that we relate to stuff outside of here? And use this as a lab, not just a perfect incubator that when we go out of here, it's like there's no connection. At IMS, the guy who runs the snowblower talked to the guy who runs the lawnmower and said, don't be embarrassed to run the snowblower. They're practicing mindfulness in there. (laughs) It's all just sound to them. (laughs) Just one quick... um, implication of this is like we start to be able to see beyond our prejudices is a really useful thing for society you know that we can really like start to look at another human being and see the human being not experience our prejudices first or not experience our conditioning first um, to be able to reach this intimacy or closeness non-superficiality of awareness I asked Deepama, would you like to move into the other room to sit? There's a group coming over this evening. I'm sitting now. Why go to the other room to sit? Well, we're going to do a little sitting in here. We are sitting, but other people want to come, and they're going to be sitting in the other room. Finally, I got her to go into the other room and sit. (laughs) She could just be there relentlessly. Her eyes could be open. Her eyes could be closed. It really didn't make any difference. That was the most remarkable aspect of her presence in our house. The sense of, why move? What is there really to do? So the last um, aspect of sati that I'll talk about is remembering. And the the function of mindfulness is to keep the object or keep the experience in view or stay with it. But it also means remembering when you forget, like those times when you notice that you've been off on a very long mind trip or you haven't been mindful and you kind of come back, however it is that you come back. Even noticing that you've forgotten is mindfulness, although it's actually a moment of clarity and wisdom, which if we're careful, we can just let it rest as that. If we carefully relax around saying, like I'm telling myself a story right now, that's what's happening. Not sort of jerk yourself back to the breath on a very short leash or start to punish yourself for having a mind that's unsteady, like minds are. So I'm going to try to bring us back to being lost in the woods again um, by inviting us all to study our distraction and notice uh, distraction as part of the path or part of the practice. And the pleasure of that is knowing that our mind and body are in 
constant flux and a beginning of understanding maybe the fourth foundation of mindfulness as described by the Buddha, that there's nothing fixed here, that even mindfulness comes and goes. And yet there's something lawful about the way everything unfolds. And in understanding that lawfulness and the interconnection of things, there's a deep, deep compassion that starts to arise arise or arrive to say, this is how this mind works and this is how this heart works. This is how it is. Someone was killed and I feel grief. This is how this heart is operating. I forgot where I put my glasses, like it's impermanent holding on to the image of my glasses in my mind. I wasn't mindful. You should have seen me making this talk, how many things got lost in a very small room. (laughs) I can't find the folder, I can't find that poem. I can't find the beginning or ending of um, the theme that I'm having here. That our perceptions are incomplete, kind of always, and that you know, we struggle to have the perfect and accurate perspective on everything, and it's just really not available. We're all a kind of a process going on. And yet, somehow, we're held in being by something beyond the small I. You know. So as we thanked ourselves, what did it take for us to get here? You know, our father and our mother even, you know, and then the food after that, lots of stuff and the pain, and the joy, and saving up the money, and getting the time, and having people let go of us, and all that stuff. So again and again, just doing this one thing at a time, paying attention, repeat. Doing one thing at a time, paying attention, repeating. We start to see that we're a flow, that we're a process. Even the mind that relentlessly fabricates, relentlessly creates, And in knowing this, we're quite close to what the Buddha wanted us to know, that in the way that thoughts drag us off, there's kind of a key or a secret to our insubstantiality. The Buddha was visited 40 times after, before and after his enlightenment, 40 times after, Jack told me this great statistic, after his enlightenment by Mara, who said a lot of things to him, like, you shouldn't be teaching, Um, you should die now, like, there's no point in your continuing. Lots of stuff. Always attacking sort of his right to like, be present in a certain way. And the Buddha did never, like, he didn't attack and kill Mara. That's not our mythology. And he didn't even uh, make Mara go away. And he also wasn't persuaded by Mara or his mind. You know? He said, I see you. I know what you are. I've seen you, house builder. I see how you put this stuff together. And I know, uh, therefore, that you're empty. So how amazing... You know, I used to always obsess when I was a child about those stories about time travelers. You know, you go back in the dinosaur times, and if the dinosaur eats you, then you never were born. <laughs> you know, like, then how could you have gone back if you were never there? <laughs> right? <laughs> So what remains, you know, if we fully let ourselves be combusted by being in this flow? Dr. Martin Luther King said, All I'm saying is simply this, that all of life is interrelated. Somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. 
For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That is the interrelated structure of reality. So the Buddha said, following the road, that traveler would see an ancient city, an ancient capital, inhabited by the people of former times, complete with parks and groves and ponds. And he would ask that that city be rebuilt and to put the right rulers in charge. Um, So that's almost like this kind of mythic vision of like the interior castle, as they speak in um, other mystical traditions, of what's possible when we put the right uh, mindfulness in charge of our experience, mindfulness in charge of our schedule every day. And allowing our life to come to us in its fullness and its in our total openness, which is the dimension that it's always existed in. It's like what happens can't affect our openness, and that's where we ultimately place our trust in that openness. With that, I feel that mindfulness touches on what we might call like the sacred dimension, something beyond words, where we'll see what's called like our own true face which is actually the face we've had all along. Tzafiz said, Where's the door to God? In the sound of a barking dog, in the ring of a hammer, in a drop of rain, in the face of everyone I see. So in a way, we already know that. And in another way, we come to know it more and more deeply, more and more clearly through the practice that we're doing here. Thank you for your attention. So sit, as is our tradition, just for a little bit. So may we all be at home in our being, just as it is, here and now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.